Good morning, Arbor. Good to see you all. The pressure now is on for the guy who likes to use a lot of words to use fewer words today. So I'm going to try to compress my 17-page message down to like seven pages for all of you. Um, I do want to recognize that in the room, we have some people that might be grieving today. I hate to bring up open wounds, but boy, that was ugly for Gonzaga yesterday. Ooh, that was brutal. And if you got it recorded, I'm sorry, spoiler alert, but you might want to just save yourself some grief and just not even watch it. That was hard to watch. So once again, all right, all these hopes not coming to anything for Gonzaga, but we'll continue to believe in the little engine that could, and one day they're going to get there. So how many Bulldog fans do we have in the house anyway? Any Gonzaga fans? Oh, not a lot. So we don't have a lot of grief and sorrow in here. That's good. All right, so I'll just be quiet, and I'll jump into the Bible part of this stuff instead of what's happening in life around us. We're getting to the conclusion of James. We've covered a lot of ground. Um, I'm speaking today, the last part of chapter 4, the first part of chapter 5, and I believe Ryan or somebody, I think Ryan's wrapping it up next week. So we've covered a lot of ground. And we're going to dive in today, but I want to remind us that if you look back on James, really the goal of the letter of James is to help us be disciples of Jesus, patterning our life after him and trusting him to guide us. It's all about if you say you're believers, then here's how you should live, all right? with trials, with your tongue, with your giving, with your relationship to others, with taking care of the poor. He goes through a laundry list of stop saying you're a believer, but not doing things as a believer. It's a survival manual to find freedom in Christ. It can feel a little bit constricting at times, the way James is just like very direct. But in his directness, he's saying there's freedom in Christ when you live in Christ. So we've talked about controlling our tongues, facing trials, humility, not showing favorites, and many other wise practices to follow God. Today, we're going to tackle this. Seek and obey God with our plans and our wealth. Seek and obey God with our plans and our wealth. God, I pray you would just give us ears to hear, hearts to listen, and minds and feet and hands that will do what you tell us out of your scripture today, God, not what I have to say. May your spirit lead in Jesus' name. Amen. So these last verses in James 4 and going into 5 emphasize the importance of humility and dependence on God, warning against the arrogance of self-reliance and the dangers of wealth and exploitation. The connection here is very simple, that you can claim to be a Christian, yet live and act without God. And that goes on for many of us. It's happened for me in my life where there's times I say I'm a Christian, but my actions and behaviors and attitude towards God don't align with what he would say they should be. James is saying the pursuit of our passions without God overtakes our call to do the good works and will of God. And you heard that in our last week's message, how our passions can overtake our pursuit and purpose of God. So the first thing I want to jump into is James chapter four, and he starts off this passage with this like, now listen, this is like a harken back to the Old Testament prophets when they'd stand up and they'd get ready to share something new from God. He's like, yo, y'all listen up, all right? Kind of like back in the day, you know, like stop, collaborate and listen. I'm back with, no, we're not going to go there. Not at all. But it's the idea, you need to stop, turn your minds on, tune in your ears because what I'm about to share with you is like a bullet list, a laundry list if I wrap up my letter of what you need to hear. And it's going to be quick, it's going to be direct, and it's going to feel a little bit like, oh, dude, lighten up a little bit. Am I doing anything right in my life? 
Yet the reason he's doing this is to help us see, all right, the truth of what God wants us to be. So let's start with James chapter 4, verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist, a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Wow, thank you, James. Wow, there's a lot in that. So am I just not supposed to do anything or plan anything? Here's the first point James is making in this. Be prayerful in your plans, not presumptuous. Be prayerful in your plans and not presumptuous. James is not saying we should not have ambition plans or desires for wealth or success. Rather, that it should be rooted in our heart to honor God's work and his will in our life and our wealth and our success. It is the arrogance of assuming we can control our future plans of our own accord. Verses 13 through 14 laying this groundwork of warning us against the concept or the idea of, I can control my own future. Destiny is in my own hands. I can manifest it for myself. While there is power in positive thinking, and there is power in getting negative thinking out of your life, you need to realize you're not in control of your life. We live in a myth that we are, but I've been around too many things to show us that we're not. I teach students one of the biggest issues they deal with at school is making assumptions. The biggest thing that happens, he did it on purpose. She said that on purpose. He's being mean. She's being mean. And they make assumptions. So I've given them this little, this little like four A's to work through when, they are, when they're feeling frustrated. The first one is, did you assume? Did you ask? Did you adapt? And can you act differently now? And it's very simple because they get the idea like, oh, I assume that when that soccer ball flew across the air and hit me in the head, they did it on purpose. No, you were walking across the soccer game, reading a book, not paying attention, and you walk through the middle of a soccer game, the likelihood of you getting hit in the head with a soccer ball is very high. So don't assume that they did it on purpose. Did you walk over and ask them, did you kick that ball at me on purpose? Yes. Well, that's a whole different story now. <laughs> Which has happened before. And a kid tell me, but it was a good shot, Mr. H. Right? And she deserved it. She was being mean. Or it's like, no, you walk through the middle of the soccer game. So now that you've asked, you can recorrect your assumption and you can adapt how you're going to live and act now and be different. And when we apply this to this, it's like we should do the same with our future plans. It, we can't go into it assuming this. We need to stop and ask God, what are your thoughts? What is your will? I give this to you. Here's what I would like to do. There's nothing wrong with that. Here's what I'd like to do. Here's what I hope to do. What do you think, God? And then we need to listen. And if along the way God says, eh, this or that, we need to adapt and act according to his will. Otherwise, we're just simply moving along, acting in our own arrogance and our own presumption that I've got all the answers. I, I can tell you in my life, and if you hang around with me long enough, the train wreck of a life that I've had at times, I can't be presumptuous. I can make great plans, but I better go back to God and make sure he's involved in those plans. So be prayerful in your planning, not presumptuous. Verse 14 reminds us of this. Life is short, it's a vapor. Here one day, gone another. 
The point is that we don't know what we don't know. We think we don't. We think we know it, but we don't know what we don't know. I mean, just in the past two months, my, my mom's had a heart attack and triple bypass surgery. Um, my cousin Dave has fainted off of a motorcycle driving down the road and fortunately lived, but found all these other things that are going on and fractured ribs and back issues and turned into high diabetes issues and now heart issues and he's facing health crisis. And now my uncle Bernie is going through finding out he's got a tumor on his esophagus and it's inoperable and he's old enough that they can't do chemo so they're doing radiation just to extend his life a few more months. I'm telling you, we don't know what we don't know. I've had the healthiest of friends, all right, climbing a mountain, great health, heart attack. You don't know what's going to go on. We don't know what life has in store for us, but God does know, and life changes on a dime. And if you hold on to your own life so tightly that it's going to go the way you think it's going to go, you're going to be eating, eating more tragedy and hurt and sorrow in your own life than you would if you live it freely to God. That's what he's trying to tell us here. Verse 15 is the remedy to all of this. So Scott, if we're, if we're supposed to make plans, it's okay to make plans. It's okay to want to be successful. It's okay to try to want to have a healthy lifestyle and living. How do we do that then without being presumptuous and arrogant and assuming we can do it all? Verse 15 is the cure. It says this, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we live or do this or that. And this isn't just one of those casual cliche tack-ons that we do. You know how we end our prayers? In your name, in your will, if it's your will. We say that, but do we truly live and surrender to God's will? Are we truly okay that if we're pursuing an avenue or a doorway and it closes, do we take that as a no or do we know to kick the door open? Sometimes we need to kick a little harder or knock a little harder. But you're not going to know that if you're not seeking God's will. And that's like a big myth mythological thing in, God, in, the, in the world of Christianity time. And we'll talk about that a little more in the message about God's will. It's not a secret. It's really about humbly going before him and being open-handed with what he brings into your life. And when you're open-handed with your life and not presumptuous that you can manage it, you're able to navigate life a lot better. One of the things that somebody I heard somebody say is this, make your plans in pencil because God holds the eraser. Proverbs tells us this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. When we ask God, seek his wisdom and align our plans with his will, then we can say, I know I don't know what I, I know I don't know everything or what I don't know, but with God, he can prepare me for that. Now, God's not some cosmic parent where you have to get permission for everything you're going to do in life. So it's not about permission. It's about partnership. And God wants to partner with you in your life and lead you in your life and guide you in your life. And here's how you know the will of God in your life. You go ahead and make plans. And as long as those plans are moving forward, you continue to fellowship with God and go in that direction. God can't move a ship that's just anchored in the harbor waiting for God to tell you what to do all the time. You got to at least get out into the waters and start navigating the direction that you feel led and continually to check the compass, check the directions, check in with the captain who is God, and he can direct your paths. It's okay to be in control of your life, but not in so much control you're not giving God power to manage and direct your life. 
There's a balance there, and we have to find out what that is. So the first thing is be prayerful in your plans, not presumptuous. James 4.16 brings us to another point. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. Practice humility and avoid hubris. I love that word. That word of hubris is the idea of like, oh, I got it. Look what I did. Look what I've accomplished. There's a little bit of narcissism in there like, oh, it's all about me. Boasting can lead to great falls. It reminds me of the story, the little joke about two ducks and a frog shared this pond on a farm. And they shared it very nicely. And one day um, they noticed that the pond was starting to diminish in water and the drought continued and it wouldn't rain. It was hot, sunny days. And towards the end of the summer, that pond had shrunk down to a mud puddle. And the ducks weren't happy. They couldn't swim. The frog wasn't happy. He couldn't cool off. So they came up with a scheme. One of the ducks said, well, let's just fly over the trees to another pond. The frog goes, I can't fly. So the ducks grabbed a stick and they put one in one bill and one in the other bill. And then the frog jumped up and bit onto the stick and held onto it. And the ducks flew off. And as they're flying over top of the farm, the farmer looks up and he goes, wow, that is a brilliant idea. I wonder who came up with that. And the frog yelled out, I did. <laughs> Splat. Boasting will always lead to splatting. I will, I've learned this the hard way, all right? From a young youth to my adulthood, boasting always leads to splatting. It's not about you. It's about others in your life and God and how you give credit where credit is due. Practice humility, avoid hubris. Then there's this last verse that's very interesting. Um, theologically, it's called the sin of omission, and we're going to go into this last verse. But James concludes the chapter by stating that not only doing the right thing is good enough, but if you know the right thing to do and don't do it, that's even worse. So he says in verse 17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So my last point in this James chapter five, 4 is this, obey God and avoid the sin of omission. Martin Luther King once said, is there's no worse sin than the sin of silence. When you stand by and you don't do something when you know it's the right thing to do, either in your own life or the lives of others. Particularly, he's going back up to his previous passage in James 4 about your passions, your desires. In this chapter, your plans, your arrogance. If you know that you're acting in that way, yet you don't change it because everything seems to be going all right. I don't have any problems. But you know it's not relying in God or God's not a part of it. And you don't go back to God and make him a part of it. Then that's sin. Simply by omitting and leaving out God's voice and will in your life over your own will in your life. And trust me, I've been there. There's been years in my life where God did not take the place in my life that he should. I believe that it's time for us that we recognize most of us know what is the right thing to do. But do we have the courage to do the right thing? We don't need some divine commandment to tell us to be kind to people or to treat people with respect. You know what happens? It's in those moments when we don't want to. Have you ever had those don't want to moments? They're not just two-year-olds and four-year-olds. Don't want to. I don't want to. Well, it's time to go to bed. I don't want to. 
It's time to take a shower. I don't want to. I never understood that. You're stinky, you're muddy, you're gross, you filthy little animal. It's time for a shower. I don't want to. <laughs> well, for the sake of all of us around here, please take a shower. At 13, there's this thing called deodorant. Wear it. I don't want to. Sorry. <laughs> if you're not going to shower, bathe yourself in Axe spray. That's even worse. <laughs> Some of you have teenagers, you know what I'm talking about. That is not working for you. Stop. You wonder why people don't talk to you. This is why. It's called hygiene. Shower. I don't want to. Sorry. We laugh at it, but we all have the don't want to's in our life, don't we? I don't want to. I don't want to do that. And we think it's okay because we don't do it, and we walk along and everything seems fine, but we're omitting what we know God wants us to be doing. And when you know that and don't do it, that's worse than operating in ignorance. There's some people that have the sin of ignorance because they don't know what they're doing is wrong. Think of your children, even us as adults. But if we have been convicted, if we've had it pointed out, and we know ourselves it's wrong, we don't do it, that is a great evil, James says. And that is what's frustrating him as he writes to the church. He says, listen for the still small voice of God speaking to your heart. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you urging us to act on the convictions that God has placed in our heart to make the bold decisions and live as believers in a dying world, in a lost world that's around us. Because if we aren't, we're omitting the call of God, the opportunity of God to use you as a vessel for the message of salvation to a lost world. And if you're not doing that, you're omitting the full purpose of why you're on earth. And then your plans will be all about you because it really isn't about us. James advises against boasting about our future plans. He advises about making our accomplishments all about ourselves. And he emphasizes that life is uncertain and short. Like a mist, it can appear for a little while and be gone in a moment. Instead, he asks us to acknowledge our dependence on God's will and all our plans and all our efforts and all our successes. He continues this line of thinking into chapter 5. And it's not because he doesn't want us to have wonderful things in life. He wants us to have them with the right attitude and the right understanding. We jump into James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. He start, I'm going to break it down before we read the scripture. He starts this final chatter with the fleeting nature of wealth and the misery it can bring. Not that wealth is bad. We're going to dig into this. He highlights that our material possessions will decay and become useless, emphasizing that true value is found in spiritual treasures. Harken back to Jesus' message in Matthew. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, but in heaven. All right? He's hearkening back to that. James 5, 1 through 6 can be summed in three principles that James says them negatively at first, like the don't do this, and then we're going to draw the other side of it, what we should do. In my line of work as a principal, as a teacher, we, we try to avoid telling kids what not to do. We always try to request the desired behavior in a positive statement. Rather than standing in the hallway as kids are exiting lunch to go to recess and they're running like mad people down the hall, instead of yelling, don't run, please stop running, don't running, I stand there, I go, thank you for walking, please walk. Please walk. Thank you for walking. And one, just the other day, some kid goes, you say that a lot. I go, because you guys run a lot. <laughs> All right. Rather than stand in front of the class, you know, 
hey, I told you five times, be quiet, don't talk again, just be quiet. No, I need everybody's hearing. I like how so-and-so is listening. I appreciate how so-and-so is listening. Now, that's the way we try to do this. There are times, though, when you just have to have a come-to-Jesus moment, and you have to say, stop it. For the love of God and all things holy, quit throwing pine cones at kids at recess. Stop. And there are times in our life where God's going to grab us and go, stop it. Just stop. There's nothing wrong with the negative leading a statement as long as there's a statement on their side of what we're expected to do. And this is what this passage is about. So here's the first three things we're going to hear. Don't hoard money greedily. Don't withhold money deceitfully. And don't spend money selfishly. The opposites of that are manage your, or steward your money wisely, all right? earn your money honestly, and share your money generously. So let's dig into this. All right? the sli- here's a slide. Here's the overarching thought. Don't be greedy, deceitful, or selfish. Instead, be wise, honest, and generous. Don't be greedy, deceitful, or selfish. Be wise, honest, and generous. And he starts off by talking to the rich. And while this may be specifically aimed at the financially wealthy, I want us to look at the lens of how we are rich in our gifts, our time, our resources, and our finances. And by the way, we still are one of the richest nations in the world, comparatively to everything else. But while this is targeted to that, there's lessons all of us can learn in this. So let's start. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming to you. I mean, James is hardcore here. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Do you hear that back to Jesus, Matthew? Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Man, alive. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. I mean, he comes out swinging. I don't know the full nature of what's going on in the communities of the churches that this letter is going to go to. But apparently there are significant haves and haves nots and not a lot of going on in between there. And the first point I pull out of this is this. Don't hoard money greedily. Steward it wisely. James is not condemning wealth. He is not saying you shouldn't invest and be careful with your finances. Specifically, James is condemning the practice of hoarding. Hoarding means holding on to things for yourself. You've probably all seen the old show, Hoarders Gone Wild or whatever that is. I can't watch them, all right? My, my OCD takes over. I'm like, oh my gosh. I walk into offices that aren't mine and start rearranging and straightening things. It's a bad habit, all right? But hoarding is holding on to things for yourself. Stewarding is understanding that what you have has been given to you as a responsibility to manage and use wisely. Our gifts, our finances, our resources, our time, our gifts to us from God, they can be gone at any moment. Just as many wealthy people get sick suddenly as poor people. We all have the exact same amount of time in the day as anybody else. God has given each and every one of us unique gifts and resources to use or to omit. What Paul, I mean, sorry, what James is saying here is this. Use them correctly. Don't hoard them. Don't hold on to it yourself. Be a steward of it. 
Christian stewardship refers to the responsibility that Christians have in maintaining and using wisely the gifts, wealth, and resources given to them. God wants humans to be a collaboration in his work and his will on earth. Are we doing that with our finances? You've often heard, you want to know where somebody's best interests lie, follow their money, follow their spending. It's a call to all of us. Even myself got convicted reading this. Don't hoard money greedily, steward it wisely. Next, by the way, we have people in our church that if you want more wisdom on this, don't come to me. <laughs> There's what people in our church that are phenomenal at investing, budgeting, how to spend money wisely. We can help each other, and we need to. <clears throat> don't let it be an anchor around your neck. It's hard. I know it's humiliating at times. It's embarrassing. We all need help in different areas. Do not be hoarding. Do not be unwise. Do not be, un, you know, not careful with your finances. Let's steward it wisely. James chapter 5, verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. This is pretty direct. And apparently, they weren't paying people a fair salary or they were withholding savings. There was often a practice of people would come in and do the farming and preparation and plant the seeds and weed and take care of everything. And oftentimes wealthy people in this time would say, we will pay you accordingly to how, the, how well the crops turn out. Well, what if there's a drought? What if there's bad weather? Well, then you won't get paid as much because I'm only going to pay you based on what I can make out of the crops. Rather, what James is saying, no, you pay them according to their time and effort. That was the practice. And what I think James is saying here is this. Don't manage your money deceitfully, manage it honestly. Don't try to find so many things that you can hide or hint or do things like that. Manage it honestly. Are we honestly using our money the way that God has given it to us? He condemns the wealthy explicitly here for exploiting and oppressing others, particularly laborers, to amass their own wealth. He states that God has heard the cries of these oppressed people and the wealthy will face judgment for their actions. Now, you may think we don't see much of that in the United States. Eh, we do at times. We're just starting to see where equal wage is out there for everybody. There's a long time in this country that people didn't get paid the same based on their color, their gender, based on accomplishments or not accomplishments, which is still fine. There's bonuses. I wish I had a bonus in my job. Trust me. <laughs> The point is this, are you honestly using your money the way it needs to be used? Or does it go back to the hoarding? The reason the wealthy weren't paying their laborers what they should is because they wanted more money for themselves. And we can't just blame this on the rich and those in power. There's opportunities for us to think about this as well. I think about my, um, I have a friend, I won't say any names. Um, I'm a generous tipper just because I've, I've been in the food business. I have friends that are in the food business. I'm a generous tipper. We're not going to get into the tipping thing. Um, this person doesn't tip. Or if they do, very stingily. Now, that's a minor thing. I mean, come on. That's just like easy, low-hanging fruit. But there's a heart issue behind like, dude, people are working hard in here. Now, we can debate this all day. Bad analogy. Point is this. Are you so stingy with your money that you're trying to find sneaky ways to do things that you shouldn't be doing? I don't know. Are you honestly managing your money? The misuse of power can never be excused because it's been given to you by the hand of God. And God doesn't misuse his power. 
He gives equally to all. Equally to all. He rebuked the disciples when someone poured perfume on his feet and they rebuked her. He was constantly saying, I didn't come for the wealthy, I came for the poor, the impoverished, the hurt, the sick. How honestly are we managing our money? Verses 5 through 6. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. I'm telling you, these are not easy verses to digest over a cup of coffee and a Danish in the morning. They're not. Because it's easy to remove yourself from going, what? that has nothing to do with me. I'm not living in luxury or self-indulgence. I'm not doing any of that. That has nothing to do with me. And I, I've thought that. But then I looked at this and I broke it down a little bit more and I, I sum it up by this way. Don't spend money selfishly. Share it generously. God is not interested in how much you're giving, but are you giving with a happy heart? That is the bottom line. People always ask me all the time, should I tithe 10%? Should I give this amount? I said, you give according to what God is telling you to give at the time he's telling you to give it. And it might be more in some seasons, less in others, directed in one way one time and another way another time. The point here is this. Are we so, go back to the hoarding, go back to trying to not be honest with how we're using our money with ourselves or others, and is everything in our life about our wealth, our time, and our resources benefiting me and me alone? Hey, you know, I, I could look back and run a laundry list of how much I've spent at REI, and that would be really embarrassing. I, I mean, I need another backpack like I need another, you know, hole in the head. All right? I got plenty of those. But this is what we tend to do, especially on the social media. Things like the algorithms throw up there. I'm like, oh, that is a really cool pair of shoes. Yes, I have a shoe problem. I'm admitting a lot of things up here today. All right? I really like cool shoes. I don't need another pair of hiking shoes. I don't need another pair of boots, but doggone it, those are really cool looking. Am I the only? No amens. I'm really, I'm really hanging out here to dry. I'm like, whoo! All right, so Scott, Scott, make sure you don't spend your money selfishly. Share it generously. I'm not telling you to go out and start giving your money away to everybody. Listen to me carefully, all right? You need to be wise. Remember I went back up to wise? This, this, when I see someone on the street, I want to give money. I have learned, and I've worked in the industry, and I've worked in the ministries of serving people and youth on streets. I sat on a board for years in Seattle, New Horizons. I am more careful and more aware of giving people in need just cash. That doesn't always solve the problem. Feels good. When it says share generously, you need to be wise. Are we given to people and ministries and organizations that are building systems and programs and shelters and food banks that help people get off the feet and move their life forward and get back into what they need to do? So don't just throw money around. That's not what James is saying here either. He's saying share generously. Be open-hearted to share your money with where God is telling you to share it. If you go back to James chapter 1, he says this in the beginning of the book. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The pollution of the world is this. Mine, 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 mine. 
God comes in and washes over that, and we need to say, yours, 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 yours. And that's a hard concept to do when it comes to our hard-earned dollars. Because for some of us, we are living on the bare margins. We are just struggling to get by. So I'm not here saying that everybody should be giving the same amount. What I'm saying is, are you generous and open-handed with your wealth, your time, and your resources? Are we going back to that first word, hoarding? You hold it so tightly out of fear, out of envy, out of security, out of control, or simply out of, it's mine. I earned it. Does what I do with my money help lift people out of poverty or does it help keep people impoverished? And you can take that financially or you can take that spiritually. What we do with our wealth, what we do with the gifts, the time, and the resources God gives us will help lift people out of poverty. Proverbs eleven twenty four and 25 says this, one person gives freely yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but becomes poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Generosity is one of the best godly characters that you can have. The richest investment in life is to invest in others. The most satisfied people, according to research, are those who give of their time and resources to others. The most wealthy people in the world You've seen the trend of giving to others. Wisdom, honesty, generosity. We need all three together. Wisdom, honesty, generosity. We need all three together. Don't be greedy. Don't be deceitful. Don't be selfish. Be wise. Be honest. Be generous. James sounds negative at times, but we need to wake up in a call in our life. Christian adults need to hear the word no sometimes. And James is calling us to action because of the no. He's complimenting us when he holds us to a high regard, saying you can do better, so let's do better. When God speaks to wealthy people and points out failures, it's because he expects more of us and requires more of us. And we are wealthy in Christ. The rich men in the days of James thought they had it all because they could by what they did. But God is saying it's your attitude that is more important. The words are challenging because God believes we can change. We should be seeking and obeying God with our plans and our wealth.